Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our look at the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here he's going to be in chapter 20 of Genesis, looking at the theme of salvation for the Gentiles. Do keep up with our upcoming events. They are linked down there in the show notes. We have a course coming up in a few weeks in the month of March with Peter Lightheart on Pauline theology, and we have a couple of events coming up this summer as well, our summer conference and our Trinity feast. All of those events are linked down there in the show notes, and we look forward to seeing many of you there. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are helped by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan looking at Genesis chapter 20 in the life of Abraham. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We ask that as we look at Genesis chapter 20 together, your Holy Spirit would be with us to guide our thoughts. Help us to learn things here that will help us appreciate better how you act in the world and see your hand in our affairs and appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his holy name. Amen. All right, this is our ninth study in the life of Abraham, and today we come to Genesis chapter 20. Your notes say that this is the salvation of the Gentiles. We recall that part of Abraham's mission was to minister to the Gentiles, and we have seen him setting up altars around the land and leading some of the people there to the Lord, and now we'll see another instance of it. This is also an Exodus pattern passage, and as we look at it, we'll see both the Exodus pattern and the conversion. So, let's look at this overview of where we've come and where we are now in the story of Abraham. In chapters 12 and 13, we had the dominion was a theme. Abraham had dominion over the land, and he marked it out with the altars. And then there was a descent into Egypt and Exodus and then restoration to dominion. And those two chapters were paired. We saw it was one story. And chapters 14 and 15 were also a story in themselves. Attack on the land, dominion over the land, and promise of the land was the theme there. We saw that chapters 16 and 17 belong together as one story about circumcision and the cutting off and restoring of the fleshly line of Ishmael, who was driven out and then restored through circumcision. Chapters 18 and 19, we saw that the theme there was the birth of the seed involves the destruction of the wicked, that the promise of Isaac's birth was intimately tied to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and these two passages belong together. Now we come to chapters 20 and 21, which belong together, again, as one story. They're all connected with Abimelech. We meet him at the beginning and at the end. And sandwiched in there is the birth of Isaac and the separation of Ishmael, the true seed and the gospel to the Gentiles. The separation of Ishmael does involve the gospel to him, as we'll see next time. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles here. So again... The coming of the seed is connected not only with the destruction of the wicked, Sodom and Gomorrah, but also with the gospel going to the Gentiles. 
Now, chapters 20 and 21 are our literary unit, and all of chapter 20 has to do with an attack on the seed and the conversion of Abimelech. Chapter 21, 1 through 7 has to do with the birth of the seed Isaac, and then verses 8 to 21, the separation of the true and counterfeit seeds. Ishmael has to go. And then verses 22 to 34, again the theme of the gospel to the Gentiles as Abimelech comes and insists on having a covenant with Abraham. Let's talk first of all about the setting of this passage. Who were the Philistines? Well, if we look back at Genesis chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, we're told explicitly who the Philistines were and how we're supposed to understand them. Always go back to the table of nations to find out who these nations are and who they're related to, and it often gives us theological clues. In chapter 10 of Genesis in verse 13, we read, Mizraim, that is Egypt, became the father of Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. So, the Philistines are descendants of Mizraim, or Egypt. They were Egyptians. And the theme in Genesis is that God's people are to be priests to the nations and minister to the nations, and that is usually seen in connection with Egypt. Abraham went down into Egypt, Pharaoh drove him out. Now Abraham is going to have this ministry among these Philistine Egyptians. Isaac later on will have a ministry among these Philistine Egyptians. Joseph will be taken down into Egypt, and Egypt will be converted under Joseph. And so Egypt is the Gentile draconic nation that has to be conquered by the gospel. And that is an important theme in the book of Genesis, and of course it's an important theme in the history of Abraham. So always remember that the Philistines were Egyptians. The second thing to note is that Gerar and Philistia were not part of the promised land, at least at this point. If we look at chapter 10, verse 19, the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza, and as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adam and Zeboim as far as Elisha. Okay, so it didn't extend to Gerar. There was a boundary there. And in Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21, we read, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists the people, Kenite, Kenizzite, Cadmonite, Hittite, Perizzite, Rephaim, Amorite, Canaanite, Girgashite, and Jebusite. Nothing about Philistines. They weren't given Philistines to dominate and conquer. In verse 13, now here we come to the prophecy that's being fulfilled here. In Genesis 15, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Now, the degree of that enslavement and oppression varies. But we are in Genesis 20, and this is where it starts. This is where that prophecy begins to be fulfilled, the 400-year oppression. They were actually in Egypt for 215 years, 
But the oppression begins here in the outskirts of Egypt in Philistia, which is related to Egypt and theologically is part of Egypt. And the oppression of the living outside of the land, being a stranger in another land, begins here. Up to this time, Abraham has been dwelling in the land of promise, which in a sense is his land, even though he doesn't own it. In a sense, he's a stranger there, but in a sense, it's his. But Abraham now moves out of the promised land into the outskirts of Egypt, and there he dwells in a land that is not his. And from now on, the patriarchs will be primarily dwelling outside of the promised land, a great deal of time in Egyptian territory. And then, of course, Jacob spends a great deal of time in Mesopotamia under oppression. So they actually don't live in the promised land, and it's important for us to see this geographical point here. So they're dwelling outside of Canaan in Egyptian territory, and in chapter 20, verse 15, after Abimelech is converted, he says, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please, or wherever is good in your sight. And that reminds us of the land of Goshen, which Pharaoh gave to Joseph and Jacob, which was the best of the land of Egypt. If we look at chapter 21, verse 34, we read that Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. And in chapter 22, verse 19, after the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, And Abraham lived at Beersheba, which was kind of on the border of Philistia and the Promised Land, but was actually in Philistine territory. Isaac also dwells in Beersheba, which at this time is Philistine territory and not part of the Promised Land. So, they live outside the land, and that fulfills the prophecy in Genesis 15.13 that they would be strangers and that they would be oppressed. We will see the oppression beginning here in chapter 20. And then there's relief from it, but then there's continual oppression of one sort or another from here on. It may be fairly moderate, or it may be fairly intense, but there will be oppression from now on. Now, why did Abraham have to make this move? Well, he had to move away from the Jordan because of the physical and cultural chaos that came after the destruction of the circle of the Jordan. Remember God rained down fire from heaven? And I imagine that, well, of course, we know from the Dead Sea that it changed the land considerably. And it probably polluted the air. We read that the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And unquestionably, there was a lot of cultural disruption and chaos, probably a lot of anarchy. And so Abraham moves away and is forced out. Well, that's the setting. We're in Gerar, the Philistines, the outskirts of Egypt. Now let's look at the Exodus pattern in Genesis chapter 20. And you have it in your notes here, but let's just review it. The first part of the pattern is that some threat drives the righteous away from Eden. And here, Abraham is driven away from his home by the destruction of Sodom. The next part of the pattern is an attack on Eve by the serpent. And here we will find Abimelech seizes Sarah for his own purposes. And the bride is attacked. The righteous are attacked. Then another part of the pattern is a use of deception to trick the serpent. Just as the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh and were blessed for it, so Abraham and Sarah seek to mislead Abimelech. This is how you have to deal with tyrants. If you have to deal with tyrants, you try to avoid them and get away from them. If you're stuck with them and they seek to oppress, then... 
you may have to deceive them. It's a warfare situation, and we see this over and over again in the Bible. There is a certain deception here. Now, it's not actually a lie that Abraham tells, but of course it's not the whole truth either. It's a deception designed to protect Sarah and him. Fourth, we see a miraculous intervention. God speaks to Abimelech himself, and that's often part of the Exodus pattern. It happens with Nebuchadnezzar, for instance. Then we see plagues. In this case, the wounds are closed up. Verse 18, the Lord had closed fast all the wounds of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So plagues come. Another aspect of the pattern that we don't always see, but we see it here, are visions. Visions come to the pagan Lord. God appears to Abimelech. And this also happens with Nebuchadnezzar and with Pilate. Pilate's wife has a vision. Pilate doesn't respond to it, but Abimelech does. We have a Passover. This happens during the night. Transition from wrath to grace. We see the serpent trying to blame the righteous, which has happened before. Pharaoh tried to blame Abraham. Pharaoh attacks Sarah, takes her into his harem, and then it's all Abraham's fault. And he blames Abraham and drives him out. Well, here it is again. Laban will do it to Jacob. Pharaoh will do it to Moses. It happens almost every time. The serpent tries to blame the righteous, and here Abimelech tries to blame Abraham, but it falls flat. Because it was Abimelech who was in sin and not Abraham. The next thing we see is a humiliation of false gods. That happens in the Jacob story when the household gods are captured and they're humiliated by being sat on. Of course, God defeats the gods of Egypt, humiliates their false gods. Well, here the humiliation comes in that Abimelech is converted to the true God and will cast away his idols. And finally, we see spoils. Spoils are given to the priestly people each time. And here Abimelech gives gifts to Abraham when he repents. Well, let's look at the exposition of the passage and read it together now that we've overviewed it. Now, Abraham journeyed from there, that is, from the Jordan area, now in disaster, toward the land of the Negev, south country. And he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in Gerar, which is Philistine territory, and he's outside the land. He's been driven out. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, was Abraham lying? No. She really is his sister, as we'll see, daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. But why did Abraham say this? Why this deception? Well, Abraham was trying to protect Sarah, since any honest man would come to Abraham in order to get to Sarah. That was the custom. Abraham is the brother. He's the protector. And they would have to come and ask. And he could say, well, no, and make excuses. But here we have a tyrannical attack. Abimelech's action was a tyrannical attack. He simply seizes her. Oh, well, she's not married. She's your sister. Well, okay, I'll take her. I'm sure you'd be honored to have her come and be part of my harem. After all, I'm the king. So, And then there's no request, and Abraham has no opportunity to protect her. Now, as we shall see, Abimelech was an unwitting pawn of Satan who hoped to prevent Isaac's conception by making Sarah pregnant by another man. And that will be one of the important themes here. Now, Abimelech's sin is the sin of tyranny. Sin of tyranny. And God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. 
verse 3, and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Actually, God says, You will surely die. And that takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. Abimelech had not come near her, verse 4, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my palms I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Well, we have the dream in the night, part of the Exodus theme. And we have this threat of death, you will surely die, which calls us back to original sin. And that the seizing of Abraham's wife is like Adam seizing the forbidden fruit. Now, Abimelech protests that he is innocent of adultery, and that's true. And God had prevented it. And he says that he didn't really mean to do anything bad. That he didn't intend to be tyrannical. And I think that based on that, we can kind of read that he assumed that Abraham would be honored by this, and that's why he didn't consult the way he should have. But the fact is, he was acting tyrannically, whether he intended to or not, by taking a sister without the brother's permission. And this is Adam's sin, to seize godlike prerogatives. And that's what tyranny is. To seize the prerogatives of God, to make yourself be like God, and seize his prerogatives. It was the same sin, and so it's the same punishment. You set yourself up as God to make your own decisions, and take what you want, and God threatens to put him to death. Now, we see Abraham as a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. And that shows that Abraham had this ministry to the nations. A prophet... Someone who has access to God's heavenly counsel and can speak there and be heard by God and then bring the messages of the counsel back to the people. And that's Abraham's position. As far as these Gentiles are concerned, he will speak for them. He will minister for them. And that's his priestly work. And so here we have highlighted Abraham's priestly work to minister to the nations and his prophetic work to speak on their behalf to God and carry God's judgments back to them. Ministry to the Gentiles is very important in this passage, and here it comes. He will pray for you, and you will live. Now we come to verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning, as a reason for calling attention to that here, and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. And it's important to see that they were afraid. Well, we have a new day, a new creation and a new life for Abimelech. The Passover has happened in the middle of the night, and Abimelech has seen the angel of death because the threat was death. And Abimelech has responded by letting God's people go, unlike Pharaoh. It isn't necessary to kill a whole bunch of people. Abimelech repents and wants to do what is right. And so there is a new day for him. And early in the morning he arises because he and his men fear God. And it's important to see that they now are afraid and they fear God. 
They don't hate God. They fear him. And Abimelech, verses 9 and 10, called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And here's the attempt to kind of pin the blame on someone else. What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? And you have done these things that ought not to be done. <laughs> Somehow or other, it's all your fault, Abraham. It's your fault that I seized your sister. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you did this thing? In other words, what did you see? What did you see here in this land that made you think you had to carry on this deception? What did you see that caused you to do this? And that's an honest question there. Abimelech wants to know, What was so wrong with me that you felt like you had to carry out this deception? And Abraham said, Well, this is why. Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Well, look at verse 11. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place. Is that right? Was Abraham right? Yes, he was. There was no fear of God in that place. And that's why we're told in verse 8, the men became greatly frightened after God spoke to Abimelech. And Abimelech got scared, and he put a little fear of God into all of his men. But that fear was not present originally, and now there is fear. And why is attention called to this? Well, to show conversion. There was no fear of God there, and Abraham tried to avoid contact with those people as much as he could because he saw that there was no fear. But now there is fear, and that's conversion. They've gone from not fearing God to fearing God. And fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's conversion. And that's why attention is called to it here. Abraham is ministering to the Gentiles. It's his evangelistic work. Then in verses 12 and 13, we'll already began to read that. She actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother. She became my wife, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness that you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So he says, this has been our custom right along to do this wherever we go. And as we've seen before, that's for her protection as well as his. Well, verse 14 is interesting. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Why did Abimelech do this? Because he saw that he was in sin. And this is restitution. He makes restitution to Abraham by giving him plenteous gifts as well as restoring Sarah to him. And that's to cover his sin. So there again is a confession of sin implied here in the actions that take place. Again, evidence of a conversion, of a transition from wrath to grace among these Gentiles. And then Abimelech shows another evidence of conversion. He asks Abraham to stay with him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever is good in your eyes. So Abimelech wants him to live there. Doesn't drive him out. Remember, Pharaoh drove Abraham out, gave him gifts, and said, Now get out of here. I never want to see you again. But not here. Pharaoh was not converted. Abimelech is. Abimelech wants Abraham to stay. He wants to keep this good man near him, to minister to him and help him out. He doesn't drive out the preacher who put him under conviction of sin. Instead, he recognizes such a preacher for what he's worth and wants to keep him around. 
Then in verse 16, it's an interesting statement from Abimelech. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is a covering for your eyes before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. Now, this is a significant statement here. What does this mean, a covering for your eyes? Well, it's a veil. And what it means is that Abraham is Sarah's veil. You have to go through the brother to get to the sister. You don't marry a woman without taking the veil off. In the wedding service, even as we have it today, the girl wears a veil and then the husband lifts the veil. But she has to be given to the husband first. And Abraham is Sarah's veil. And that is the sin that Abimelech committed by refusing to recognize that Abraham was Sarah's veil and that he was supposed to go through Abraham to get to her. And so this money is a public statement that Abraham is Sarah's veil and that Abimelech recognizes that. The gift is a public affirmation of Abraham's being a veil to Sarah, being her protection, being a wall around her to guard her from anyone who would attack. And that is the public vindication. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is for you a covering of the eyes before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. In other words, I'm reestablishing the veil by giving money to Abraham and making him powerful enough and strong enough to protect you. All right. Now, what's been going on here all along? Well, we really get the picture here in these last verses. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, all of a sudden we're talking about having children. What was Abimelech's goal? To go to bed with a pretty woman? No. It was Abimelech's goal to have children. And that's why God's plague was that the wombs were closed up and there would not be children. The Lord had closed fast all the wombs of Abimelech's household. So they couldn't have any children. What was Satan's goal? lying behind this. Why did Satan motivate Abimelech to do this? Why did he trap him into this sin? Because Satan wants to raise up ungodly seed through the bride. Satan wants to raise up ungodly seed through the bride. And that's what he was trying to do with Eve. Spiritually speaking, Satan wants to use the bride to raise up his own children. That happens more than once in the history of redemption. It's what Pharaoh was trying to do. Kill all the boy babies, keep the girl babies alive, he says. Why? Well, so that they can marry and have children for us. And we'll use their bodies to raise up children for ourselves. And spiritually speaking, that's what Satan always wants to do, to eliminate the true groom and to use the human race to raise up children for himself. Now, that's the theology of the passage. In the case of Genesis chapter 12, the attack was on the bride. Here it's on the seed. Well, let's look then in conclusion at the theology of Genesis chapter 20. First of all, why was the timing important to Satan? Well, it happens during the three months before Sarah was due to conceive. And Satan knew when that would be because she was to give birth one year after the destruction of Sodom. That's what God had said. 
at this time next year, I will return and you will have a son. And so that means that Satan has three months to prevent Abraham from giving Sarah a child. Because after three months, then Abraham will give her a child and she'll carry it in the womb and then it'll be born after a year. He has three months to get her pregnant by another man and to prevent this. And so that is why immediately, as soon as they go into this land, Abimelech is motivated by honest belief that as a king, Abraham's sister would be honored to be with him. Satan causes him to attack her so that he can get her pregnant by another man. It doesn't work. What's the difference between Satan's attack in chapter 12 and here? Well, in chapter 12, it was an attack on the bride. Here, it's an attack on the seed. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we'll see that both of them are important, though the symbolism varies in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In chapter 12, we have the enmity between Satan and the woman. It's an attack on Sarah, an attempt to get her and simply remove her from the scene as far as Abraham is concerned. There's nothing about children there. Here is an attack on the seed, desire to prevent the seed from being born. And Satan does that throughout the Bible, right down to Herod, killing all the boy babies in Jerusalem to prevent the seed from being born. And that's the contrast between the two. Satan still tries to attack the seed today, get Christians to put their children in pagan schools and let them be corrupted by the word of Satan. It's very important for us to remember that and do everything we can to give our children a Christian education by whatever means God is pleased to give us. Well, what are God's two methods of dealing with Satan's attacks that we see? Well, either punishment and destruction of the tyrant or conversion of the tyrant. When these attacks come from Satan, God does one of two things. He punishes or destroys the tyrant, or else he converts the tyrant. And the Exodus pattern shows both ways that God has of dealing. For instance, in chapter 12, God punished Pharaoh, and Pharaoh drove Abraham out. At the time of the Moses Exodus, God punished and destroyed all the power of Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh was destroyed in the Red Sea. Now here, the tyrant is converted comes to fear God. In the book of Daniel, we see the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar converts and fears God. So these are the two ways that God has of defeating Satan's attacks. We cry out to God to save us. He will either destroy or convert those who have attacked the Christians. A fourth aspect of the theology of the passage that we should look at briefly is Satan and the seed. We can kind of summarize what's going on here. When Satan thinks that Lot may be the one to inherit everything from Abraham, then he corrupts Lot. He brings Lot too close to the world, and Lot is seduced into trying to get all the good things of life before he should. Then, once Lot is removed from the scene, Satan thinks that Ishmael is the seed and arranges for him to be cast out. But, by provoking conflict between Hagar and Sarah, Satan arranges for Ishmael to be cast out, but God thwarts that by sending Ishmael back and circumcising him and bringing him into the kingdom. But at the same time, God announces that Ishmael will not be the seed. Well, the seed is going to come from Sarah. So what do we got to do for Satan? Well, we've got to get her pregnant by another man to prevent that. And that will just mess up the whole deal. Well, 
Finally, once Isaac is born, Isaac is the seed. So what does Satan do? Well, he sets up a counterfeit. He uses Ishmael, again, to be a counterfeit Isaac. And that's what we'll see next time as an attempt to undermine the seed line and prevent the kingdom from coming in the world. And of course, at that point, Ishmael has to be sent out and is given his own land in another place. Well, finally, let's notice the conversion of the Gentiles here in this passage. There are three lines of evidence, at least, that we can point to. First of all, they come to fear God. They come to fear God. They didn't fear God before, and now they do. Second of all, Abimelech makes restitution for his sin. He makes restitution for his sin by giving gifts. And in that way is confessing that he was in sin, and now he is repentant of it. And the third major evidence is that they want Abraham to stay with them. They want him to remain in their midst so that they can have the blessing of the covenant and receive the kingdom as it comes through Abraham. Well, so this is an encouraging passage to us as we see God converting people in the Old Testament through his people. And there's one more picture to us of how important it is that we as Christians be like Abraham and bring conversion and salvation to the world through prayer and through evangelism. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we meditate on these things now, study them out, and think about them, you would show us ways in which we could more effectively minister to our world, the Gentiles and the pagans. Preserve us from their attacks. Destroy our enemies by converting them. And help us to see the day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.